So why did Paul write the book of Romans? Paul wrote the book of Romans for several reasons. One is that he was preparing the Roman believers for an upcoming visit. You see, he told them that he was going to stop over in Rome on his way to Spain. And so, estoy seguro que Pablo hablaba español. He also was preparing the people for a visit by a young lady named Phoebe. And Phoebe was the carrier of the book of Romans. She actually took Paul's epistle, took it to the Roman church. And, um, and they, he wanted them to treat her well, to receive her, and uh, that they would take care of, of uh, la, uh, the sister Phoebe. Mm-hmm. The, another reason that he wrote the book of Romans is, you know, Paul recognized that the church in Rome really didn't have a leader. It didn't have a head pastor there. And um, we don't really know how the church in Rome began, but we have a hint of this in Acts chapter 2 when uh, the believers there on the day of Pentecost, they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and many of them returned to their own country and Romans were mentioned there. And so possibly these people took the gospel back to Rome and a church was started, but they did not have a pastor. They did not have a leader. And Paul really assumed that responsibility. He wanted to be the pastor. He saw these people as um, sheep without a shepherd. And so he had a burden for them. Another reason that he wrote the book of Romans is because the Roman church really started with Jewish believers And then there was a time when the Jews were kicked out of Rome and it became a Gentile church. And then there was a time that the Jews were were allowed to return to Rome. And uh, there was a bit of um, unacceptance by the Romans uh, concerning the Jewish believers. And Paul has to explain to the Roman church, you need to accept your Jewish believers. And there are some within the church that have weaknesses, some have strengths, and some of those weaknesses are maybe having to eat kosher food or observe certain feast days. And so Paul was writing to clarify these things for the Roman church. He also wanted to write to them because there were people that were coming behind him. They were called Judaizers. The Judaizers were confusing the people, telling the Christians that they had to convert to Judaism, that they had to become baptized and eat kosher and observe the Sabbath day and all of these rules that are outlined in the law, in the Torah. And so Paul had to clarify many of these things. So we see these themes running through the book of Romans. So in the first chapter of the book of Romans, Paul explains about himself. He calls himself an apostle and he is a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He's called by God and you and I have been called by God. We've been given different responsibilities in the church. The Lord has given us gifts and a calling and he wants us to be serving him. And so I'm a believer in that there's not a Christian who just comes to church and warms the pew. I believe that all of us are servants of God and we all have responsibilities. We're a body and each one of us, as members of the body of Christ, we have different functions. And if we're not functioning, if we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing, then that affects the, the, the whole body. And it's not a healthy body at that point. So I want to encourage and exhort you this evening, discover your spiritual gifts and begin to use those gifts if you're not already in ministry here at the church. And I know the Lord will bless you. Paul mentioned something in the first chapter. We're going to go chapter by chapter. So in the first chapter, he talks about the gospel. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And... The gospel is the good news, and Paul talks about the righteousness of God, and he says that we need God's righteousness. Now, the Lord Jesus said something very similar in the book of Romans on the Sermon on the Mount. He told his disciples, if your righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, there's no way that you're going to enter into heaven. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were very holy. They did religious things. They prayed, they fasted, they gave, they tithed. But Jesus told his uh, uh, disciples, you need to have a righteousness that is greater than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then Jesus said something very interesting. He said, if your righteousness 
Well, he says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And so that's God's desire for us. That's God. That's Jesus' desire for his disciples. He wants us to be perfect. So I have a question for you. How many of you here this evening are perfect? I don't see a single hand raised. And that's the dilemma. And that's the bad news. You see, if we're going to go to heaven, we have to be perfect as God is perfect. And so Paul spends the first three chapters, three and a half chapters, trying to convince the Romans that they are bad, bad, bad people. And in doing so, he's convincing us that we are what? Bad, bad, bad people. And so this is very important to understand at the beginning. Now, at the beginning, Paul says there's a righteousness, the righteousness of God that is testified through the law and the prophets. And he quotes um, an Old Testament prophet. His name is Habakkuk. And Habakkuk says, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And this is God's design. This is his will for us is that we as believers would live by faith. And uh, so I need to clear that up, that there was a prophet in the Old Testament, Habakkuk, who mentioned this. And Paul picks this up, not only in this book, but also in the book of Galatians. And he also, well, if he's the writer of the book of Hebrews, he also mentions that very verse from Habakkuk there as well. The just shall live by faith. And it's so important. In the first... uh, chapter in the second half of the first chapter if you're following along in your bibles paul gives us a list of about 31 different sins and he goes through from top to bottom and he explains all kinds of different sins paul is very good at making lists and so he starts with unbelief he starts with callousness he starts with those who believe the lie and i believe the lie is evolution those who try and come up with something other than the biblical model of creation. And so people would rather worship the creation rather than the creator. And so this is what Paul is, uh, is mentioning here. Can I tell you guys a story? I like this story. It's from Peru where we live. So there was an Inca. He was a king. He was a ruler over the people. His name was um, Pachacutec. Can you say Pachacutec? Pachacutec. And so one day he was worshiping the sun god Inti. Can you say Inti? Inti. And something happened when he was up on the mountaintop and he saw Inti and the sun or Inti um, was covered by a cloud. And he started to think about it. He said, could it be that my God, if Inti is really uh, God, could a mere cloud diminish his glory? And he started to think about it, and he thought, you know, maybe I'm worshiping the wrong God. And as he thought about it, he saw that Inti always came up in the east, and Inti always sat in the west. And so he was always on his stuck path. He didn't vary. He wasn't a creative God. He couldn't go. He had limitations. And then he also realized that Inti would sit in the west, and he would have to hurry up and, through the night, go all the way to the east so that he could make his appointment in the morning. And so he was wondering, am I really worshiping the true God? And he went to the fathers of his, uh, the elders of his tribe, and he asked them, have we always worshiped Inti? And they said, no, we used to worship a God named Viracocha. Viracocha is known as God the creator, but Viracocha is so good and he's so perfect that we stopped worshiping him and we started worshiping his creation, the sun, Inti. We're bad people. And Pachacutec began to think, I think that we should go back and start worshiping God the creator. Even though they knew him by a different name, Viracocha in this case, he was God the creator. He was perfect. He was holy. And Pachacutec began to write songs to Viracocha. And there are psalms like of worship that parallel the psalms of David. And so isn't it neat that God could reveal himself to an emperor sitting on a mountaintop, just thinking, he doesn't need us, but he chooses to, to use us. He wants to use us. So that's the story that I wanted to point out. In that list that we were talking about, fornication, adultery, murder, um, there's all kinds of sins that are listed here. 
as well as the sin of unforgiveness. And I think he saved the worst sin for last. Uh, he started really with the sin of homosexuality and lesbianism, went through all of this list, but I think the worst sin he saved for last when somebody doesn't want to forgive someone else. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if there's something to why he left that for the very, very last sin. So he goes through this list of sins, and we could read that list of sins, and some of us can be very embarrassed. And we can say, yeah, I've done that, and I've done that, and I've done that. And if that's your case, that's good, because God is pointing out to you that you are truly a sinner. But there might be some here that are saying, well, I've never committed any of these sins before, and so I'm a good person. And maybe you know someone like that. <laughs> I have a brother. I was trying to share the gospel with him. I told him he needed Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And he said, Savior from what? And I said, well, to save you from your sins. And he said, John, I've, I've never sinned before. How can a person be saved unless he knows his need? And this is what Paul is pointing out to us here. In chapter 2, he's talking to the judgmental person, the person who's pointing his finger at other people saying, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, and I'm good. But Paul needs to point out to this judgmental person that he's just as guilty, just as sinful, just as bad as all of those people that are listed in chapter 1, the pagans there in chapter 1. And so Paul has to tell the self-righteous moralist that he, and convince them that, he, that they are sinners as well. He goes on, well, I should mention chapter 2 and verse 4. There's a beautiful verse there. It says, don't you know that it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance? Could you repeat that verse for me? It's the goodness of God that leads a man to repentance. A man doesn't repent because God twists his arm and requires him or, or obligates him to repent. A man repents of his sins because he realizes how good God is and how great God is and how wonderful God is, how merciful God is, and that's what leads us to repentance. Well, in the second part of chapter 2, Paul stops talking about the moralist and he begins to talk to the religious person and he said just like the pagan in chapter one and just like the moralist in chapter two at the beginning a religious person is not going to enter the kingdom of heaven either and how many people are there that they think that because they go to church or because they tithe or because they serve on the mission field or in sunday school that they're going to go to heaven but jesus said that's that's not how you get to heaven. Many people sacrifice, they give, they, they, they fast, they even memorize scripture. But Jesus talked to those people in Matthew chapter 7. He said, you say to me, Lord, Lord, but you do. But he says, but I don't know you. He says, you, you prophesy and you do miracles and you cast out demons. But he said, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, because I never knew you. See, there's a lot of religious people that do very good things. They could even perform miracles, speaking in tongues or whatever. But that does not mean that they're saved and that they're going to heaven. Jesus said, I never knew you. Do you know Jesus? Does he know you? That's how you get to heaven. It's a personal relationship that we have with our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not because we do good things. And so Paul had to point out to the religious person, you're not saved because of your circumcision. And in our case, we're not saved because of baptism. We're not saved because of church attendance. The religious person is just as bad as the moralist, as the pagan. We are all in the same boat. And you know what? He puts the final nail on the coffin at the first part of chapter 3. And he says, there is none that are righteous. Help me. No, not one. We are all depraved. We are all sinful. We are all guilty. We are all unrighteous. We are all sinners. And this is the bad news. Ladies and gentlemen from Calvary Chapel, Pasadena. That's the bad news. And so that's why none of us could raise our hands. Because we're guilty we're sinners, we deserve death, and after death we deserve 
What? Hell. Mm -hmm. None of us deserve heaven. Now in verse 21 of chapter 3, Paul says something very beautiful. There's the word but there. And this changes everything. It's like the sun is coming up over the horizon after a very, very dark night. And he's pointing out something. He says, but there's a righteousness, the righteousness of God that is available to him who believes. For him who believes. Is believing difficult? Is it laborious? Is it, does it cost a lot? No. You simply believe because it's a gift that God gives to us. He freely gives us the gift of salvation if we will just take and accept that gift. And he goes on there in chapter 3. He says, because it's a gift, none of us can boast. Wouldn't you hate to get to heaven and hear all of these boastful people? I did this and I did this and look what we did. There's no boasting when we just simply receive what Jesus has done for us on the cross. He paid the price for our sins. He shed his innocent blood. And if we just accept his death as a substitute, we should be the one dying. But because he died for us, we get to go to heaven. I should see some smiles on people's faces this evening. You should be so joyful and so grateful for what Jesus has done. He saved you and you haven't done a thing. All you have done is believe. And there's no boasting in that. In chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, there are some very important words that I think we must define. The first word is the word justification. Do you find it there? Justification. What does justification mean? Well, it's the same word as righteousness. And God is righteous. God is just. God is holy. God is perfect. And what Paul is telling us here is that we have been justified. And that word justified comes from the legal area of Roman government When the judge would listen to, at a trial, he would listen to the person that's being accused. And when the judge would determine that he is not guilty of any of 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 those accusations, he would take his gavel and he would bring it down and he would pound it on his desk and he would say, justified. He would say, not guilty or innocent. And Paul is saying, you and I have been declared what? justified that means that if we believe in what god has done for us what jesus has done for us on the cross and we apply his gift of salvation to our lives that we have the very same righteousness as god isn't that neat as god is holy you are holy as god is perfect you are perfect as god is sinless you are sinless as god is righteous you are what Righteous. Mm -hmm. Now I want to ask the question again. Anyone here a righteous person? Just one? (laughs) Two? (laughs) If you believe in what Jesus has done for us, you are saved. You are righteous. Mm -hmm. And again, it's not by works of righteousness that any of us have done, but it's a free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? So we have been justified. We have been declared innocent. I like the word justified. Someone said one time, it's just as if I'd never sinned before. Mm -hmm. It's like a newborn baby when he, the daddy receives him and he's sinless. He's perfect. This is the way that God sees us. Hmm. But you and I know another reality, don't we? We sin We stumble, we make mistakes, we offend God many times. But the fact that we have been declared righteous, this means that uh, that's the way that God sees us today. Even though we continue to make mistakes. You see, John told us if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have been purified. We are cleansed. 
well, why do I keep sinning then? Well, I need to let you know, justification is past tense. When God sees you, he sees you perfect. But the fact that you continue to sin, that means that you're going through a process of sanctification. Can you say sanctification? Sanctification. We are being... (laughs) We are growing. We are maturing. We fall. We make mistakes. God has made provision for those mistakes. If we just confess our sins to the Lord, He is faithful and He is just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. But we're going to struggle with this flesh until the day we die. Mm -hmm. And that's when the process of sanctification ends. It's when we die. You see, right now we have a struggle in this world. The world tempts us. The enemy tempts us. And our own flesh tempts us. And don't you know that God knows that? And so he has made provision for us. He's already declared you righteous. We're going through the process of sanctification, but one day we're going to be glorified. And that's when we're at home with the Lord. We're going to get new bodies. Mine is going to be much thinner. And and we'll be at home with the Lord. We will not have a struggle with sin and with temptation. And we'll... That's what awaits us. I should see some smiles on your faces. Mm -hmm. Heaven awaits us, and I can't wait to get to heaven. So the first word here is justification. You have been declared righteous. It's a legal term. The second word that I want to point out to you is the word redeemed. We have been redeemed. And what does that mean? Redeemed means that we have been purchased out of the slave market. It comes from the marketplace there in ancient Rome. When you would go and purchase whatever you needed, some people bought slaves. And... The Bible tells us that we are slaves, not to sin anymore, but we're slaves of Jesus Christ. He purchased us out of the slave market, not to continue to be slaves, but to to give us the glorious freedom that he he wants us to have. I have a great story if you want to hear another story. Is that okay? So there was a black slave who went to Germany. He went to a community, a Christian community. It's called Herrnhut. Uh, many a couple of centuries ago he came from saint thomas in the um caribbean he that's where he was a slave and he went and he shared with the people there in germany how he met the lord and a very impactful thing that he did is he took off his shirt and he showed everyone the stripes and the wounds in his back and he said this is the way that they treated me there back home But since then, I've accepted Jesus. I know him. I walk with him. And I want my family to know this Jesus that I've met too. I can't go back because if I go back, they're going to put me in slavery again. And I won't be of much use. But I'm wondering if there might be some Germans here that would be willing to go. And two men stood up and they said, yes, we'll go to St. Thomas. We'll go to that island. We'll preach to your family. And so they went through a time of preparation and they made that long voyage across the Atlantic over to the islands. They landed there and they tried to get into the to the slave community. But the slave owners would not let them have access to to those slaves. They were frustrated. We came all this way. We we did all this preparation. We we we. We have a call of God to, to preach the gospel to the slaves that are suffering here. What are we going to do? They just couldn't get in. So you know what they did? They sold themselves into slavery, knowing that they would never be returning to Germany again, knowing that they would probably be beaten, that they would be slaves until the day that they died. You know, that's what Jesus did for us. He made provision for us. He purchased us from the slave market. And so how can we continue to live in sin if we have been freed from the bonds of sin? So there's the word justification. What does it mean? Declared righteous, declared innocent. We have been redeemed. We have been purchased by Jesus' own blood. And then the third word that I want to show you in those verses there is the word propitiation. Can you say propitiation? Mm Mm-hmm. 
propitiation. What does that mean? That's not from the judicial area of Roman life. It's not from the marketplace there in Rome either. But this is a word that comes from Judaism itself. And what it means is the sprinkled blood. You see, the high priest would go into the temple one day a year on the feast of Yom Kippur, and he would offer an animal for his own sins and also for the sins of the people. And what he would do is he would take the blood of that slain animal and sprinkle it on top of the the mercy seat. In Spanish, it's called the propiciatorio. So you can see the relationship there. Jesus sprinkled his blood on us. We have been redeemed. We have been purchased. We have been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you understand what that blood means? You see, salvation is free to us. We don't have to do anything to acquire salvation. But Jesus gave everything he had by dying on the cross so that we might be with him. Are you grateful to Jesus for what he did for you? Yes. Uh We need to remember that. And that's why he said, take the cup and take the bread and do this in remembrance of me. We remember what Jesus did on the cross for us. He suffered and he, 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 he was tortured and, and, and he died for us. He gave everything so that we might be saved. Three very important words there. Well, Paul is anticipating people thinking, <laughs> Paul, here you've done it again. You've come up with this new doctrine. It's not found in the scriptures. You've invented this. This is why we consider you a heretic, Paul, as you just keep coming up with these, these doozies. And Paul said, no, this is a gospel that has been testified by the law and the prophets. Now, we already quoted one of the prophets. Do you remember his name? Habakkuk. Mm-hmm. And Habakkuk said, the just shall live by faith. Mm-hmm. Now, what he's going to do is he's going to go back into the law, not only the prophets, but the law. Do we have an example from the law of somebody who has been justified by faith? We do. And his name is Abraham. Can I tell you Abram's story? Okay, thank you. <laughs> Abram was 75 years old. About my age. Just kidding, just kidding. 75 years old. And his name, Abram, interesting, it means exalted father. Now, <laughs> God has a sense of humor. Abraham, if he were to go to someone and introduce himself, he would say, Hi, my name is Exalted Father. And the other person would naturally respond with, Oh, exalted father, how many children do you have? And he would have to say, zero. I have no children. 75 years of age. Sarah is 10 years younger. She's 65 years of age. And they have no children. And I'm sure in their marriage, this was a very difficult, painful thing. She wanted to give her husband a child, but she was not able to do that. And so year after year, there was this frustration. And then his name is Exalted Father. And he arrives to 75 years of age. And it's looking pretty dim at this point. But God said in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham, there's three things that I want to give you. There's three promises that I have for you. Do you want to hear about those three promises? The first promise that God gave to Abraham was land. A piece of property. He said, one day, Abraham, I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. It became the promised land. And this will be for you and your offspring forever and ever and ever. It's an eternal promise. And so this is the first thing that God promised to Abraham was a piece of property. The second thing that he promised him was a nation. That a nation was going to come from him. Now, what do you need in order to have a nation? descendants you need a son he's 75 years old he has no children what a difficult situation but god said you're going to have a nation and abraham said okay i don't know how this is going to happen but if you say it god i believe it and then there's a third thing that the lord promised to abraham 
Number one, land. Number two, a nation. Number three, he promised him that he would be a blessing. And that his name would be blessed. And that he would be a blessing to all of the families of the earth. I have a question for you folks. Have you been blessed through Abraham? You have. Me too. (laughs) How have we been blessed? You know, it's the Jews who gave us the Old Testament. They gave us the scriptures. They gave us an understanding of a monotheistic creator God that we love and cherish. It was the Jews who gave us their Messiah. They rejected their Messiah. And so the Messiah came to us Gentiles. Where are your smiles? The Messiah came to us. And so God promised him that he would be the father of the Messiah someday. Three special promises, land, nation, and blessing, which includes the promise of the Messiah. We have to fast forward 10 more years. Now we're in chapter 15 of the book of Genesis. Abraham is worried. He's troubled. 10 years have gone by. He's 85 now. He has no children. He hasn't seen this nation. He hasn't seen this land that has been promised to him. He's, he hasn't seen the Messiah. And so God has to visit him and God tells him, don't worry, Abraham. Do not fret. I am your reward and I am your exceeding great reward. Don't you know that God is more important than the promises that he has made? Mm -hmm. He's given you promises. That's wonderful. But your relationship with him is the most important. If he should decide to not give you what he promised you, that's up to him. But still, we love God. Abraham said, you know, I have a great idea, God. I'm 85 now. I have no children. But there was a boy that was born in my house. His name was Eliezer. He was the son of my slave, and he's from Damascus. And why don't we just consider him as my son? He's kind of like my son anyways. He was born in my house. What do you say, God? What do you say? And God said, no, no. You'll have a son that comes from your own body. Oh, yeah. Okay. But the Lord took Abraham outside And he had him look at the stars. Thousands, millions of stars up in the nighttime sky. And God told Abraham, if you can count those stars, that's the number of your offspring. And you know what the Bible says right there in chapter 15 of Genesis? And Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, because Abraham believed God, God bestowed upon him his perfection, his goodness, his purity, his holiness, his righteousness. Abraham became a righteous man that day simply because he believed God at his word. Not only does, do the prophets talk about this, Habakkuk talks about this, but Abraham in the law, he was saved by his faith. Ladies and gentlemen, how are we saved? By faith. In the very same way that Abraham was. Do you believe? (laughs) Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for you? He died and he paid the penalty that you should have paid. He shed his blood. You didn't have to. And you are going to heaven because he made the way for you. Ladies and gentlemen, you should be running around in the aisles here. You should be shouting hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you. (laughs) It's exciting what God has given us. He's given us his righteousness at no cost to us. And if we just believe, we're going to heaven. Mm -hmm. Most people prefer hot dogs when the Lord is offering us filet mignon. Mm -hmm. We're going to heaven. Because of what Jesus has done for us. This is chapter 4. Abraham. Believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Chapter 4 also mentions another Old Testament person. His name is David. And maybe his story is a little bit different than 
Abraham's story because uh, David made some mistakes. He started off real well. He was a shepherd and he wrote psalms and he played the harp and he killed Goliath and he was a tremendous warrior. We admire David, but there's a couple of things that David did. He committed adultery. He got Bathsheba pregnant, Uriah's wife. And in order to cover the fact that it was his child... He tried to get Uriah to come and to be with his wife, but Uriah refused to do that. He was a noble man. He said, no, I'm not going to be with my wife when my fellow soldiers are risking their lives in battle. So he slept outside. David had him killed. David was an adulterer. David was a a murderer as well. But David wrote a psalm. It's Psalm 32 that says, Blessed is the man whose iniquities are not counted against him. Blessed is the man whose sin has been forgiven. And David had to apply this righteousness that comes by faith in his life of sin as well. If you have made a mistake, if you have sinned, if you... (laughs) If you've blown it, know that Jesus can forgive you. His grace is sufficient for you. So we have two examples in chapter 4, Abraham and David. In chapter 5, Paul gives us another list of wonderful benefits that we have because of this justification that comes by faith. And what are those uh, benefits? Well, he starts off the chapter by saying we have peace with God. Before, we didn't have peace. But we have peace today because we know we're going to heaven. And it hasn't cost us anything. And this is a gift that God has given us. And so we relax and we have peace and we enjoy our Christian walk. And so many people look at you and they say, how come you're so peaceful? How come you're so happy? And you say, well, I have the peace that passes all understanding that's available to believers that Jesus has promised me. And we have peace and tribulation says there too that we have access what does access mean it means that we have the ability to go right into god's presence um remember in the book of hebrews the curtain was torn from top to bottom uh giving entrance into the most holy place before it was just the high priest that could go in the great high priest once a year but you and i can go and sit on daddy's lap anytime that we want to day or night When we're good, when we're bad, when we're going through victories or when we're going through tribulations, he invites us to sit on his lap, to hear his heartbeat, to get close to him, to feel his breath on our face. We have access to him. Isn't that wonderful? Is there another benefit? There is. The Bible says there in Romans chapter 5 that when we go through tribulation, and trials, and persecution, and problems, they have a reason. You see, they cause us to mature and to wise up. They they make us stronger. An unbeliever can't say that, but because we have been justified by faith, there's purpose in our trials and tribulations too. Not only that, but we've been reconciled with God. It tells us there in chapter 5. That means that we're no longer fighting with God. We used to fight with God, but no more. We have been reconciled. We are friends with God. And he's given us also the ministry of reconciliation. That means that we are restoring people to God. And we do this through a work called evangelism. This is when we go out and share the good news with people. And we restore them to fellowship with God. Someone evangelized you, Mm -hmm. and you have been restored with God. You're at peace with God. You're no longer fighting with God. There are several benefits there. I think there's about eight of them, and I'll mention the last one, and maybe I shouldn't, because it's a dangerous one. He says there at the end of the chapter, second to the last verse, he says, where sin abounds, he says, grace much more abounds. Now, why? (laughs) Well, let's talk about the good part of that verse, okay? Whatever you do when you sin, when you make a mistake, when you blow it, 
you can count on God's grace being greater than your sin. And I say, hallelujah. Mm -hmm. So if I make a mistake, God's grace is greater than my sin. And if I make another mistake, God's 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 grace is greater than that sin. And if I make another mistake, God's grace is what? Greater than that sin. Mm -hmm. Why is this a dangerous doctrine? Why do a lot of pastors refuse to teach on God's grace? You guys, I know how you're thinking. If I sin and God's grace is greater, then I can sin again and God's grace will be even greater and I'll continue to sin knowing that God's grace will will always be there. And he mentions this in chapter 6. He said, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? And he says, forbid it. (laughs) He knows the way that we think. He knows that we're rascals. I'm convinced that the person who understands, who truly understands God's grace, will not continue to live in sin. If this person doesn't understand God's grace and he continues to sin thinking that, oh, yeah, God's grace will always be there. He does not understand the price that Jesus paid on the cross. He does not understand the cost. He does not understand the way that God wants us to live our lives in holiness and perfection and pleasing to him. Those people who abuse the grace of God, I wonder if they really know God's grace. I wonder if they really, truly know God. Because that verse that we read in chapter 2 and verse 4, it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. It's God's goodness. And when you understand how good God's grace is, that will cause you to not sin. That's why God put that verse there. There in the end of chapter 5. It's not a dangerous doctrine. It's a glorious doctrine. It's a doctrine we must understand and think about and, and embrace. We don't want to sin because we don't want to offend the Lord. Who has blessed us so much with the promise of eternal life. But if we do sin, praise the Lord. His grace is greater than our sins. Amen. Chapter 6. Paul says... Shall we continue to live in sin? And he says, certainly not. He says, don't you know that you have died to sin? There was a Calvary Chapel pastor back in Florida who rented a coffin for a Sunday morning. He rented it (laughs) as a sermon illustration. He put it here in front of the church and he put the youth pastor inside. Where's where's Pastor Diego? He put the youth pastor inside and people would come to church with their Bibles. They were so happy, joyful when they came in the doors and then they saw a coffin and they got real quiet. And then when they saw who was in the coffin, Rick Heilman was in the coffin. Everybody was so sad. This is a funeral. It's not church service. But the pastor was using this as an illustration. And he he said, you know, Rick is here in the coffin and and I could tempt him with a six pack of beer put it there, wine in the coffin. And Rick is not going to drink it. Why? Because he's dead. A dead person will not sin. He said, I can put all kinds of drugs in this coffin too. And and Rick won't be tempted at all. Marijuana and cocaine or whatever. Rick won't be tempted. Why? Because he is dead. Mm Mm-hmm. He says, I can put pornographic materials in this coffin and they won't affect Rick because he's dead. (laughs) And that's how we need to see ourselves as dead to sin. Mm -hmm. We need to see ourselves in that coffin. And there are benefits to being dead. You're not tempted and you don't sin. And another beautiful thing is that (laughs) dead people don't pay taxes. (laughs) There's a wonderful thing about being dead. And Paul is saying this is, this is what death means to a Christian. A dead person simply does not sin because he is dead. Mm-hmm. He goes on in that chapter explaining what baptism is about. 
when we consider ourselves dead to sin, it's like us going into the water and we're being immersed in that water. We're being put into the ground. And then when we come up out of the water, it's like we're being resurrected. So we identify ourselves with Jesus going into the tomb when we're going to the waters of baptism. And then when we come out, we identify ourselves with his glorious resurrection. Do you know that you're going to be raised from the dead too? Mm -hmm. with, yeah, you can clap. With a, <laughs> with a new body, mm -hmm. a sinless body. That's really good news. So dead people don't sin. You've been baptized with Jesus. Leave the old man in the ground. But you're resurrected with him to eternal life. Isn't that wonderful? Chapter 7, it's a very interesting chapter. Paul talks about marriage there, but the lesson really isn't concerning marriage, but it's an illustration. You see, Paul says when... Two people are married and one of them die. The one that's living can now get married to another person. And so Paul is saying because we before were married to the law, the law has died to us and we're no longer married to the law. We're married to Jesus now. And this is a wonderful thing. In chapter seven, Paul brings out. Uh, very important thing that you and I can identify with. He says there, what I want to do, that I do not do. And what I don't want to do, that's what I do. Have you ever struggled with that? This is a great verse to share with unbelievers because they struggle with the same thing too. Wow. Paul struggled with that. You struggle with that. I struggle with that. It's a struggle of all of mankind. And it's very interesting at the end of that chapter, Paul says, who will free me from this body of death? And it's good that he said, who will free me? Because he recognizes it's a person. It's not a program. It's not a book. It's not a sacrifice that you make. It's Jesus who will free you from this body of death. Can I tell you what that body of death truly means? Back in Roman, time, Roman times, in the first century, when, if you were to kill somebody and you were guilty of murder, what they would do is they would take that dead body and strap it to your back. And you would have to carry that body with you the remaining, the remainder of your life. Isn't that terrible? What happens to a body when it begins to decompose? Oh, the stench, the smell, and, and you have to live with this. But what happens to that decomposed body? It begins to break open and the liquids begin to pour out on, over your body. And those bacterias and maggots and things that were eating that decomposing body slowly begin to eat your living body. And Paul is saying, this is what sin is like. Who is going to free me from this body of death? that I'm carrying around. And you and I are carrying around this, this body of death. Who uh, This body always wants to sin. We need to recognize that that's what that body looks like. It stinks, the stench, the smell, the, the weight, the, the agony, the torment when we live lives of sin. Who will free us? Jesus will free us from this, this body. Chapter 8. Well, let me tell you something about... Yeah, chapter 8. <laughs> Chapter 8, someone said that when your, body fall, um, your Bible falls open, it should automatically open to, to chapter 8. Because in verse 1 it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why is the therefore therefore? It's because he's talking about this justification that comes through faith. And when we've been justified by faith, there is no condemnation for us. You should not feel condemned. You're not a condemned person. God sees you holy and righteous and you need to realize that you are holy and righteous and God does not condemn you. He might give you some conviction. He might tell you that what you're doing isn't correct. What's the difference between conviction and condemnation? Condemnation drives you away from God. Conviction drives you to God. We need to learn to discern which is conviction and which is condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
We can have conviction, but that should lead us to Jesus, to ask forgiveness and humble ourselves before him and bring us closer to him. Chapter 8 also talks about something that's precious. It's the word adoption. You and I have been adopted as believers. As, as believers. We have been adopted into God's family. There was a little girl, no, there was a, a family who wanted to have a child, but they tried for years and years and years and they just couldn't have a baby. So they decided to adopt a baby. And they went to the agency and filled out the paperwork and they were waiting for this particular baby to come. And wouldn't you know it, the wife discovered that she was pregnant. So they actually received about the same time two little girls. One was a natural born child and the other was adopted. And as the little girls grew up, the natural born girl would always bother her sister saying, I'm my mom and dad's little girl, but you were adopted. You belong to somebody else, but I'm mom and dad's little baby. And this adopted girl had to hear this for so many years. But one day she got real smart and she said, I want to tell you something, sister. You may be their natural born child, but they chose me and they didn't choose you. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? God has chosen us. He's chosen you. He saw something special in you and that's why he adopted you. There's several theological terms related to adoption. One is called called. Another is predestined. We've been predestined. We've been chosen. We've been elected. We've been adopted. Mm -hmm. And we need to embrace those terms. That's the way that God sees us. He loves us. Chapter 8 finishes really the doctrinal portion of the book of Romans. And so that's what we've seen up until this time. The theme is justification by faith. We've been declared innocent. We've been declared righteous. We've seen all of these tremendous benefits and we see how we're dead to sin, but we're alive to Christ. And it's Jesus who will free us from this body of, of death. So chapters 9, 10, and 11 talk about a certain theme and it seems at the beginning unrelated to what Paul has just taught us. The theme is the nation of Israel. Chapter 9 talks about Israel's past, Israel's history. Chapter 10 talks about Israel today. Chapter 11 talks about Israel in the future. Now, if you're looking at chapter 9 and verse 1, Paul proposes a question. He said, well, what he said was, um, I would be, he says, I'm heartbroken, I'm sad. And uh, I would be willing to give up my salvation so that my brethren, the Jews, could be saved. Would you be willing to give up your salvation so that somebody else might go to heaven in your spot? I've never run across a person who had said yes to that question. Can you imagine suffering in eternity forever because you gave your place? You gave heaven to somebody else? Of course, God would never request of that of anyone but paul so loved his people that he was willing to do this so chapter 9 talks about israel's history he talks about uh, god dealing with pharaoh and with uh, other biblical characters there and chapter 10 talks about israel presently and and paul says has god forgotten his people he says of course not i am a jew and god has reached me and then in chapter 11, talking about the future, he, he asked the question, has God abandoned his people forever? And he says, of course not. And so in chapter 11, we have a beautiful teaching, several beautiful things, but one of those things is that well, one of the things I really want to tell you is it gives us our job description there as Christians we should be provoking the Jews to jealousy. We should love the nation of Israel so much and support Israel and, and bless the people of Israel because God said to Abraham way back there in Genesis 12, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Does anybody here want to be blessed? Bless the people of Israel. Bless the Jews. Bless the descendants of Abraham. Every time I see a Jew... I run up to him and I squeeze him and I squeeze all the Jews out of him. <laughs> this should be our attitude towards the descendants of Abraham. We want to bless them. 
We want to support Israel. And I know many of you are going to go next year to Israel and look for opportunities to bless the people of Israel. Pray for them. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, the Bible tells us. Well, Paul says something there at the end of chapter 11. He said that the gifts and call of God are irrevocable. God will not give you a gift just to take it away. And so why does he have chapters 9, 10, and 11 in the book of Romans? He's proving that God is going to be faithful with the nation of Israel because he gave Abraham certain promises. Remember those promises? Uh, Land, nation, and blessing. And isn't it interesting that in the past century, the Jews have returned to their land, the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as an eternal possession. The people of God, the nation is dwelling in that land and you're going to go and see them. And of course, the Messiah has come. All of those promises have been fulfilled. Will God promise something to Abraham just to take it away? No. He said that the call of God and the promises of God and the gifts of God are irrevocable. What does that have to do with us? You have been saved by faith. God has given you a promise of heaven. Is it like God to give you a promise and take it away? Of course not. And so you can trust God's promises. Amen? Amen. Chapter 12, it has to do with, well, Paul says, present your bodies as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. There was a missionary who was teaching an Indian tribe in South America. He led the tribe to the Lord and he was trying to teach them about giving and about um, being generous. Of course, in the jungles, they don't really use coins or bills, but people would put in the offering basket maybe eggs or a chicken or a goat or a turtle as their offering. Well, when the empty basket was handed to the the chieftain of the tribe. You know what he did? He put the empty basket on the ground and then he stepped in it. Symbolizing that everything he has belongs to God. And this is what Paul is telling us. There were sacrifices in the Old Testament, dead sacrifices. And Paul is saying, present your body as living sacrifices. In that chapter, he talks about this beautiful body that we have here in Pasadena, but it extends all the way to Peru and then to Canada and Japan and over to Russia. This beautiful body. And he has given us spiritual gifts that are outlined there in Romans chapter 12. And so it's up to us to discover what those gifts are and find our place in the body of Christ. Chapters 13 and 14. Well, chapter 13, it's talking about our obligations before the government and that we should be good citizens. Because we've been justified by faith, we should be model citizens. And yes, Christians do pay what? Taxes, that's right. And we respect the authority and we pray for the king and all authority has been established by God. And so we recognize that. So as Christians, our testimonies are so important in our communities and before the authorities. It's so important. And this is what motivates us. We have been justified by faith. You and I are going to heaven. Chapter 14 and 15 have to do with uh, the weak and the strong. Chapter 14 has to do with the weak people. And it's interesting who the weak people are. Those are the ones who feel like they need to practice the law of Moses. They have to eat a kosher diet. They have to celebrate certain days, like the Sabbath day is very important. And so Paul is telling the weak people, okay, if you have to do that, still recognize that you're saved through what Jesus did on the cross for you, not because of these traditions that you're maintaining. In chapter 14, he talks to us who are strong in the faith, who don't have hang-ups like circumcision and like eating kosher and like the Sabbath day. He says, we're tremendously free, but we should not judge our brothers and sisters that are weak in the faith. So consider other people because Jesus died for them too, just like he died for you. Chapter 16, we're going to make it, guys. Chapter 16, Paul greets the brothers and sisters in Rome 
He's writing from the church in Corinth, and he sends his greetings as well as those who are with him in Corinth. And it's and then well, it's very interesting that that in this chapter Paul mentions many men and many women. So Paul had friends that are men. He had friends that are women. He had friends that were Jews. He had friends that were Greeks as well. And there's over 30 people that are mentioned here. So Paul had lots of friends, and some of them uh, he knew on his different missionary journeys. Some of them he didn't even know. He recognizes the churches that were meeting in certain people's homes. And so Paul sends greetings to them and once again prepares them for his upcoming journey. I'm coming to visit you because I love you guys and I want to share with you a spiritual gift. And you folks have allowed me to share a spiritual gift this evening, studying through the book of Romans together. And, and let me pray for you. Lord, I thank you for allowing me to be here this evening to share a little bit about the book of Romans, some highlights that are important for us. And Lord, we are excited because we have been saved through faith. We have been saved by the work of Jesus on the cross. And we have the assurance, Lord, that we're going to heaven. You're never going to take those promises away from us. You, those are eternal promises and we count on them and we rest in them and we know and we understand and we're assured that someday we will be at home with Jesus in heaven.